the last several weeks and on into the fall until we get to Advent, we've been learning from and exploring Jesus' teaching through parables. And these are, these are tricky stories, tricky ways for Jesus to even start to teach us. Um, a pastor in New York, Tim Keller, uh, puts it this way, that the purpose of a parable isn't to warm our hearts, but it's to shatter our categories. And that's what we've been learning. So I'm going to invite Joey Morningstar to, to come up and read uh, probably one of the most well-known uh, parables uh, in the Bible, and one that I, I hope will be open to having our categories shattered All the sinners and tax collectors were gathered around Jesus to listen to him. The Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. <laughs> Jesus told them this parable. Suppose you had someone among, among you had a hundred sheep and he lost one of them. Wouldn't he leave the other 99 in the pasture and search for the lost one until he finds it? And when he finds it, he's thrilled, and he places it on his shoulders. And when he gets home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying, them, saying to them, Celebrate with me, because I've found my lost sheep. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who changes both heart and life than over 99 righteous people who have no need to change their hearts and lives. Or what woman, if she owns ten silver coins and loses one of them, won't light a lamp, sweep the house, searching for searching her home carefully until she finds it when she finds it she calls together her friends and neighbors saying celebrate with me because i found my lost coin in the same way i tell you joy breaks out in the presence of god's angels over one sinner who changes both heart and life jesus said a certain man had two sons the younger son said to his father Father, give me my share of the inheritance. So then the father divided his estate between them. Soon afterward, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. There he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. <clears throat> when he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose that that, in that country, and he began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, oh, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, but I'm starving to death. I'll get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you, and I no longer des deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then his son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and I have sinned against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But his father said to his servants, Quickly, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fatted calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting. Because this son of mine was dead, and he has come back to life. He was lost, and he is found. And he began to and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. 
Coming in from the field, he approached the house and heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. The servant replied, well, your brother's arrived and your father slaughtered the fat fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound. The older son was furious and he didn't want to enter in. But his father came out and begged him. He answered his father, look, I've served you all these years and I have never disobeyed your instruction. Yet you've never given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours returns, after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Then his father said, Son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost, and he is found. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last Sunday, a group of us went out and knocked on doors to invite people to our party. And I, got, I wound up teamed up with Matt Tintera and my three-year-old daughter, Noah. And we, went, we were quite a team. <laughs> we went to knock on doors, and in our knocking, we encountered uh, several neighbors hanging out on their porch, enjoying themselves with some brews, right, Sunday evening. Immediately as we invited them to our party, one of the guys' first response was, is there going to be beer there? Two implications. Obviously, the party was already going on on that porch. They didn't really need a party. The second is that a party can't happen without some alcohol. <laughs> but then a conversation ensued. He had a history around church, and not a particularly good one. It was one where, quote, Everyone just cares about what you drink and what you smoke and what you say and what you do and not about listening to God. In his words, when Jesus comes back, he's coming to the church first, and I don't want to be there. <laughs> the, first the first statement is, you're, you're nodding, you're saying, amen, brother, yeah, yeah, come, come hang out with us. And then when he starts saying the second one, you're like, uh, maybe not. But when you start to parse his concerns, you realize how real and how valid and how widespread they are. The church is generally phobic of joy. And there's, not too much, there's often too much space between what Jesus said and did and what we're about. Oftentimes those experiences in the background and in the midst of so much suffering and pain, it's hardly conceivable that God likes to party. And yet here we are, we find this water to wine changing Jesus telling stories about parties. And not just any old party, this, this author, uh, wild author, Robert Farr Capen wrote, he called this parable the parable of the biggest, tackiest party yet thrown. You see, Jesus encouraged or encountered many religious folks, you know. He's the one that's been telling all these stories, all these parables around these people. And oftentimes he, and, and they don't even realize it until it's too late, he's put them at the butt of his jokes, these scribes, these Pharisees. Luke's te text says that Jesus was around tax collectors and sinners, typically those unjust folks, 
those sinners who are manipulators or hoodlums. You don't want to hang around those folks. And that caused religious folks, you know, the ones with their acts together, or they appear to have their acts together, to start grumbling. And I, I thought Joey did it pretty good. And I think Luke uses this word grumbling on purpose. It's not a throwaway word. You see, this is the same thing religious folk did in Israel in the wilderness. Grumble. Exodus 16, the whole Israelite community complained against Moses and Aaron in the desert. The Israelites said to them, Oh, how we wish that the Lord had just put us to death while we were still in the land of Egypt. There we could sit by pots cooking meat and eat our fill of bread. Instead, you've brought us out to this desert to starve the whole assembly to death. So dramatic, right? In the midst of God providing, in the midst of his bringing about true exodus, release, and setting up his kingdom where sin and death and oppression would be defeated, the people who should have been most privy to what God was doing merely stood around and grumbled. Grumbled. In the Exodus story, then God subverts what they're thinking. God makes fools out of them by raining down manna on their heads. He gives them so much quail, it comes out of their ears. The joke's on them. God was getting ready to party, and they couldn't even handle it. Jesus then tells this trilogy of short stories, and I think Jesus is a little ahead of his time for doing this. This is like when Netflix puts out a whole season at the one time, and like Jesus wants us to binge listen to these parables. <laughs> about lostness and foundness and joy and partying. The first two stories seem benign enough. I mean, it's a little strange. You leave 99 sheep wandering on a hillside to go find the other one stupid sheep somewhere on the hillside. You'd expect he'd count his losses and move on. Or you'd expect that lady not to spend or expend so much energy turning over her whole house. I imagine... Uh, what we call it in our house, um, when you're, Noah always has this, when you have like kind of your, uh, your uh, what is it called, like a bun or a top knot is starting to come out, we call it rom-com hair, like that, because that's like the wife in romantic comedies is like baking, she's got some flour here and it's coming out. That's what this lady is doing, she's turning over her whole house for one stinking coin. But I think both of these Characters have, well, depending on how you look at it, it's either a gift or it's a curse. That gift of being able to obsess over one possession when you have more. Human beings don't generally act that way. We're not built that way. It's that quote-unquote law of diminishing returns that you learn the first day of any econ class. You learn two things. You learn there's no such thing as free lunch, and you learn that the first burger you'll pay $8 for, and the 99th burger you'll probably pay someone to take it away from you. These first two parables start to give us a glimpse through somewhat unlikely characters, a shepherd and a woman, that that math isn't going to work in the kingdom. Jesus takes this for granted. What woman wouldn't light a lamp and sweep the whole house until she finds it, he says. The God who he's speaking for possesses something far more curious, something far more insatiable. 
the last 1% means just as much or more than that first 99. That one coin is worth waging the whole bag. And then rather than covering up the fact, this is what I would do. If I lost like a sheep, I would just kind of cover it up and like, whew, like internalize it. Man, I found it. I'm glad no one found out about that. But instead he calls all his neighbors to celebrate that he got that sheep back. It, hereby implicating him as a kind of not a good shepherd, right? <laughs> then Jesus tells that third story and he drops the bombshell. That certain man with two sons. And if we learn anything these past couple of weeks about reading parables, we remember don't get lazy by jumping to conclusions, by calling them what your like, Bible calls them or what you've known about them. Rather than the prodigal, let's focus on that certain man with two sons, the paterfamilias. This certain man had not only one son but two. And I think we're being set up so we should assume that like the shepherd, like the woman, he was in jeopardy of losing something or someone. That's the setup. But right off the scene, right off the bat, the scene opens with a death. Dun, dun, dun. It's a subtle death. It's not like a bloody massacre. This death is, involves the youngest son telling his dad that he's better off operating as if he had no dad at all or as if his dad was dead. He says, execute the will. Give me what's mine and we'll part ways. No hard feelings. <laughs> right. The son unfathers his father. He unfathers his father by doing this. He moves on to greener pastures with his inheritance in hand to do with as he pleased. Let's see if we, this is a painting by, by, by a man named Emery. This is the prodigal leaving. Right here in the story, we start to see something revealing showing up. Fake abundance, scarcity, lack, fear. Right when the son leaves the father, that's when that scarcity starts to drift in. Wealth gets turned into waste. Resources get squandered. There was a shortage of food and a surplus of need. The further away we get from the father, isn't that what happens to us? I'm talking in our everyday lives. The more distant our ways get from his ways, there's, there's not enough hours in the day. There's, there's not enough space in your brain. I know students think about that. There's not enough money in our bank or emotional bandwidth for what we encounter every day. Like those Israelites, we confuse abundance and slavery and we chase the former while we choose the latter. When the whole time God has been offering us enough, more than enough, we sang earlier together, we're soaked in all the grace that we've been given. We drink from that grace fire hydrant, but often we prefer something else, something less, something that won't quench us. We spurn those who know us best, even and especially the God who knows us best, knows every hair on your head. Think about that. Because we want adventure, or we want mystery, we want love, or we want pleasure, we want a chance to figure it out for ourselves. 
we simultaneously crave and resent the place where we get all that, that place home. We have a, a really complicated relationship with home. We've all left home at some, well, not all of us have left home at some point. It will happen. It should happen. Like, I'm far more of the older brother than the prodigal. Like, literally and figuratively, that's just, like, my built, like, what I'm, how I'm built. After I graduated from college, this is really bizarre, by the way, to tell in a room where my dad's looking at me right there. <laughs> Before I went off to college, I lived at home for a year. I worked for my dad. I had prospects of taking over the family business. And like the older brother from the, the, that older brother paradigm, it all made sense. It was like lined up in a row. It all worked out fine until I chose to, let, to leave home. I moved up here to a place I'd never been without a job. This is not career counseling, kids. I left my family and that, that family business. And, and so my, my struggle is less that, that prodigal's struggle of wildness, but it's more that guilt of ungratefulness that I walked away from home. But blessedly and ironically enough, in this process, I learned a little something about God, about how the home God often creates for us is a moving target. And so, so this spring, my home actually moved like six blocks that way, my, my mom and dad. And so in the parable, we see this grand climax coming when the boy comes to himself and goes home. He's got a change of heart and mind, and he wakes up to the fact that he's been face down in pig slop. That the idea of being one of his dad's employees, even in all that like tail between his legs, shame that that entail, that would be better than what he's been doing. So he goes home. Marilyn Robinson wrote a, a trio of books about this. Gilead, home and Lila, and in the middle of that, she, she kind of gets at what's going on in this big turn. She says, weary or bitter or bewildered as we may be, God is faithful. He lets us wander so we will know what it means to come home. So he got up and went to his father, or he thought, he was getting up to go to his boss, right? His new boss. But the father never stopped being his father, even when he did everything in his own power to unsun himself. So we focus on that certain man, the father, who was foolish enough to leave a porch light on all those years, who never stopped checking the obituaries in the paper, hoping he would not see Junior's name in there. That, quote, dead father who would give it all again in a heartbeat just to get his son back. While he was a long way off, the father caught a glimpse of him and put the wheels in motion to undo that culture of scarcity and lack that the son had been swimming in this whole time in the far country. 
He was moved with compassion. And, and if you know anything about that word, it, it means to suffer with. His guts were churning, feeling every bit of what his son looked like in his very body. Even when his son had a hard time calling him dad, the father didn't have a hard time calling him son. And so he took off on a sprint. Notice the postures of this story. Read this back later today and just look at how everyone, what everyone's doing with their bodies. First, the father's vision, right? His head is up. He's looking out. He sees a long way off. He has compassion. The father, it seems, is always looking towards the horizon, always anticipating, always hoping. And then the movement begins. He ran to him. Much has been made about how indecent it would be for, for the father to take off like that. I don't want to belabor that, but picture each of your dads doing this, like at a full sprint, like running hard, like to the point where they can't breathe after about 20 seconds. Like, that's, that's, what, that's what's happening here. And then there's an embrace, a hug and a kiss. This hug's neither, it's not a tackle, it's not like what you do in high school when you nod at someone. Have you noticed that? Like, you don't like to touch people in high school. You just kind of nod at them from a distance. But this is an all-encompassing embrace. It's an unhesitating willingness to press himself against an intimacy, against that son who smells like the sin and the betrayal of his wanderings. There's also this little space. There's plenty of room in a hug. There's, there's room still to reject it. But there's also room for that son to fold into his arms. Inside that, that little space is grace. It's hospitality. It's making possible and it's making room. And then what the father does, is he interrupts. Have you notice this? The, the son has this this whole script that he's going to say. And he interrupts him. He interrupts those scripts. He interrupts the excuses that the son has internalized. And he interrupts him by clothing him. For typically being considered a parable primarily about repentance, the son's admittance that I have sinned against you, that he rehearsed, barely gets off the ground before he gets re-wardrobed in a manner fitting of a son. Ring, robe, Shoes. And then, finally, a feast. What if the whole of the Christian life is growing into the type of people who can throw this sort of kingdom party? Following Christ might mean party planning. <laughs> what if that party planning causes us to grow like the Father in our vision? The ability to see those who are far off so they, they take their first step towards home in Christ. Robert Frost once said, home is a place where when you have nowhere to go, they have to take you. <laughs> what if instead of being the last place, what if we're, we move up that list? What if we're the first place? If following Christ means party planning, it means that we'll also have to grow in our movement. Mimicking that going, sent movement, that missio day that God has been working through forever. 
He sent His Son. His Son poured out His Spirit. In the same way, we must go. Our homecoming parties are pop-up parties. Meeting people in the places of their deepest hurting, in the places of their furthest distance. And that's all predicated on the fact that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, or rulers, not present or future things, not powers or height or depth, not anything that was created. One of my teachers, Jeremy Begbie, uh, the other day said that that's basically a fill in the blank. Like you, Nothing can separate us. Add, add what you think is separating. Nothing. Romans 8. This is the good news for us. That no distance, not even our own sin and rebellion, can separate us from the love of the Father and Jesus Christ. It's with that same outgoing love that we join the search party. Maybe our parties that we're planning are search parties sometimes. And if Jesus, if following Jesus means party planning, it means that we'll also become an embracing people. More than a handshake means bringing it in for the real thing, right? Since we've experienced that, God's open arms shown to us in Christ's outstretched arms, we've stepped into it. We've allowed him to enclose us. And we do the same. We do that without fear. We do that without hesitation. The Father puts no intermediate steps between forgiveness and celebration. Notice that in this story. And if forgiveness is the boundary between exclusion and embrace, the Father already had it, his mind made up about how this was all going to go. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. If following Jesus means party planning, it means growing more and more adept at being interrupted and being clothed. Having those old scripts, those tapes that are playing in the background, having them gone. Having our excuses canceled. All those things that, that make us think that we have to deny grace, that we have to, to do it on our own, that we could never belong or we could never believe that. To that, the Father interrupts us. This, this is like a record skip for what's happening in our lives. Because then he prepares a feast. He clothes us with all the trappings of beloved family, ring, robe, and shoes. He remakes us into sons and daughters. He calls us found, calls us alive. You see that first death that we started out with, that subtle death of the father becoming unfathered? now becomes the very way for that dead son to come back to life. This is resurrection. This is new creation. Death 
yet life. A God who would die so that we could be raised. This is the gospel of the crucified and risen Lord. And then finally, a feast. But a party wouldn't be a party, and and this is going back to the text, a party wouldn't be a party if there wasn't someone moping around with their feelings hurt, right? (laughs) Requiring far too much energy from the host. Have you ever noticed this at a family wedding? There's almost bar none, some drama happening somewhere throughout the weekend. Someone's feelings are hurt or someone is having a hard time joining the party. Or if we recall earlier, someone grumbling, right? And so here it is. The elder son doth protest. <laughs> and he's not wrong, right? That's like the, the terrible thing here is he's not, he's not making this up. After all, he was the sensible one. He did the work. He did obey. He never left. He didn't even get a young coat. I mean, what is the problem here? (laughs) Check out his posture compared to the posture of the father. His vision is inward. He turns towards the house from the field. His, his, uh, it's inward also on himself accounting for what he's gotten versus what he's deserved. His movement is inward. Rather than going out, he's coming in, and his imagination is bounded by his homestead. The embrace is non-existent. The father still looked and moved and initiated and embraced towards him. And he... Like the brother he's so keen to distance himself from in his behavior and his desserts, is also interrupted by the father. Son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because the brother of yours was dead and now he's alive, he was lost, and now he's found. You see, the father's extravagance is not going to be outdone by the younger brother's quote-unquote extravagance, but it's also not going to be undone by the older brother's stinginess. In the middle of all this lostness and death, lostness and death have no place in the father's house. The elder brother needed to be interrupted because he was way too used to the status quo. He was way too used to his brother being dead. No one likes when people come back to to life. The elder brother needed to be interrupted because throughout the story, the elder brother always needs to be interrupted. God's people always need to be reminded to welcome the outsider because they were once outsiders to God's life and his plans. It's so hard to remember what it's like to be an outsider without a steady stream of outsiders to remind you right in your face of lost and dead sons and daughters becoming found and alive sons and daughters in our midst. And here Jesus leaves it hanging. Will there finally be a feast for the older brother? We're left with that sort of tension that happens in the story with the rich young ruler who had to reckon with what Jesus was asking for. All of our expectations and hopes and fears that we might give up whatever claim we think 
we have and join the Father's movement, lean into his embrace. That we might look to Jesus as a true elder brother who takes it upon himself, on his very body, to free the world from lostness and death. Who with the Father looks and goes and throws each and every wandering lost son and daughter a party when they've been found, when they've been embraced, when they've been interrupted and clothed and invited to a homecoming party. It's a homecoming party like Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of heavenly forces will prepare for all peoples a rich feast. A feast of choice wines, of select foods, rich in flavor, of choice wines, well refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the veil that is veiling all peoples, the shroud and shrouding all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe tears from every face. He will remove his people's disgrace from off the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. They will say on this day, look, this is our God for whom we have waited, and he has saved us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. A rich feast for he has saved us. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Amen. You guys pray with me. Father, we thank you for this story that, that shatters our categories, that points fingers, but mostly points fingers at each and every one of us who would prefer comfort, who would prefer risk, who would prefer extravagance that's not really extravagant over how you provide for us, how you love us, how you care for us, the party you'll throw for us. Lord, give us vision. Give us these postures of going, of seeing, of interrupting, and being interrupted, Lord. Teach us how to be party planners. Because you've prepared a place for us. Father, with your spirit, work in our hearts. Point, point out those places that we need to change, that we need to come home. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.